Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. Hope everybody is doing great, although of course the world is in a pretty uh, shitty place these days. I don't want to get into too much of the recent news because it's all just too fucking depressing. Um, But, you know, I have to probably circle back to that at some point because... You know, it is what it is, and these are pressing issues, these are big issues, and, um, you know, I only like to talk about current news when I think I have something to offer that's new and maybe, you know, um, value-added to the current discussions, and on the stuff going on right now, I don't really feel that at this juncture, I don't feel feel like I have anything particularly novel to add, so I'm going to stick with the script here which is to kind of talk about applied ethics. And I titled this episode, Applied Ethics is Better Than Hope and Optimism, because I kind of want to contrast it with another kind of, uh, another discourse that we hear a lot. And in in some ways, this discourse started with Obama. And so I'm going to throw in a little jab at Obama here, who For all you know who know me know I was a huge Obama supporter. I love the man, you know, a really great man. I think a good president, not a great president, but a good president. But I never liked the kind of hope and change thing, right? It's just kind of superficial. It's kind of cheesy. And it kind of really distracts us from what is important, right? Hope and optimism are often substitutes for clear thinking. You know, I always get questions since I'm a professor of, you know, environmental policy. I get questions, are you optimistic about the future? Are you optimistic we can solve climate change? Are you optimistic? You know, and I go, look, I don't deal with optimism. I don't deal with pessimism. I deal with reality, right? That's the only thing worth caring about, reality. The reality today, the reality tomorrow, and the reality into the future. Right? There are objective facts about the world, and there are objective alternatives that we as a species can take. And that's where I think we should focus our efforts. And this is where applied ethics comes in, right? If we all can, or a lot of us, can begin to actually take our ethical values, first we have to formulate them, and then take them and operationalize them, My contention is that will lead to us taking much better pathways than the ones we currently are on, right? So that's kind of where I want to just start with this. It's like hope and optimism. Like, what is that? It's just just empty. I guess you could say I have hope and optimism because I know there are alternative pathways. I know we're not stuck, you know, inextricably in this horror show. But so what, you know? Let's focus on the options. Let's focus on how we get to these different pathways. That's where applied ethics comes in. And I want to take a step back in this intro and talk a little bit about technology. And this seems like maybe a digression, and it is, 
But I think it's an important one that I'll circle back to at a later time, right? And the, the reason that it's important is because technology opens up some new pathways, right? If you look at pathways for human development, for human civilization, for human society, a lot of it is really dependent on the technology, right? If the only technology available is burning fossil fuels to get energy and electricity, then that's really going to be a bad you know, list of options here. And pretty much climate emergency is the only hope because no way are people going to give up you know, using energy. But if technology opens up a new pathway for renewable, clean, carbon-free energy, then boom, then you have an alternative to the existing status quo. The same thing happens with you know, the, the second most pressing um, social and sustainability problem, which is industrial meat production. If the only option for getting protein is, you know, farmed animals, then we're going to have a pretty big issue. But as we know, that's wrong. There's plenty of protein to be gotten from plants, and there's new technologies that are making that protein taste a lot much more like animal protein. And then, of course, there's the cultivated meat technology, which is literally growing meat, but without an animal. So there you go. You have new technological pathways that allow us to completely envision new food systems. Now, with robotics and artificial intelligence, we're going to see the opening up of, of alternative pathways in many other fields of medicine and science, right? So the point here is technology, in some ways, kind of creates the breadth and scope of the different pathways. But technology is downstream from economic structures and incentives, right? Technology just doesn't come out of a vacuum, right? The reason that the internet is a cesspool is not because the internet by default has to be a cesspool. It's because of the incentives that we've created, particularly in the United States, of Section 230, which allows internet platforms to publish and amplify anything with no liabilities. They're just reproducing stuff that someone else has done so they can put lies and misinformation and they're, they're not liable, unlike newspapers and news reporting, which is. So you create an incentive structure where these huge companies like Meta and Google um, and, you know, and Twitter don't have any liability for publishing you know, nonsense and lies, and then they're going to publish more nonsense and lies, right? The reason that we now have a green industrial revolution underway is because of government investments. If we hadn't poured hundreds of billions of dollars, the Germans, the Chinese, and, and the U.S. government into renewable energy, we wouldn't have the green industrial revolution to supplant fossil fuels, right? Same thing here on the negative side. The reason cultivated meat is not advancing as fast as it could and therefore replacing the horror show of industrial meat is because of the power of the industrial meat lobby that is keeping it back, right? So these macro phenomena, these political and economic incentives can help us open up new pathways. They can also pre prevent the development of new pathways, right? So, you know, I'm going to really want to focus on these macro phenomena later on. So I just wanted to open up with saying that, like, the reason we have alternative pathways is dependent on the economic and political structures that allow for their development, okay? But for the moment, I want to focus on the person and the individual 
and not the macro structures, right? And I want to explore what a commitment to ethical living might look like. And I'm going to repeat this again. I am no saint. I have not arrived at any enlightened state. All I am is a simple man who looks out in the world in horror, right? I look at this beautiful, incredible, diverse, amazing, sentient world. And I look at the things humans are doing to each other and to the other animals. And I just, I recoil. I recoil at the tragedy and horror of human existence. And I know there is a better way. There are alternative pathways that we can choose. And I want to think about how we can choose those pathways. That's what my life is dedicated to. My professional life, my personal life, my ethical life is choosing better pathways for humanity. Right? I also know that this is a process. There is no ultimate enlightened state that any of us are going to arrive at. That's not the point. Right? I will likely go to my deathbed, hopefully if I live to over 100, and I'm still going to be working on things. I'm still going to be improving. Right? This is a process. But it's not an abstract process. It's not just mental gymnastics. Right? This is one of continuing improving your standing in the world, your actions. And as I'll get to later, while this may seem a little daunting, right? Like thinking about how to live an ethical life. This is an overwhelming project in, the, in this kind of web of insanity that the human condition is. The irony here, is I re- and I really want to emphasize this, is that a commitment to ethical living actually greatly simplifies one's life. This is one of the unexpected joys and pleasures of trying to live ethically. And it's really an unexpected benefit, even for, for me when I when I embarked on this, right? Living ethically removes a lot of the needless mental clutter that kind of fills our brain and helps to focus the mind on what's truly important, right? So my point here is that if you try to live an ethical life, it's actually going to simplify your life and create less mental kind of heaviness in your brain as you're just going to focus on core principles and try to actualize those into the world. So I'll come back with some more thoughts on this right after the break. Okay, so let's start with some basics here, right? Again, ethical living starts with a mindset, a worldview, a paradigm, right? And it says that I'm going to try to take my values and my principles and and operationalize them, make them real through my actions, that they are not going to live as some subset of things in my subconscious, but they are going to come into being in the real world. Okay, And the first kind of step into actualizing things in the real world, and this I think is the most important, 
is that we need to focus on first order impacts. Okay, what does that mean? It means that if we start trying to think of all the secondary and third impacts, the kind of, you know, if I do this, it might lead someone to do this, and that person might do this, and that might lead to that, and might that might be good or bad. We can get into this multidimensional chess game that is overwhelming. If you start thinking about, you know, all the reverberations of every one of your actions, that just becomes impossible and you're going to just stop. So you have to think, focus on first order impacts. And I think this is justifiable, right? It's just to say, if I do this, is that going to harm somebody? Is it going to help somebody? Is it fair? Is it just, right? And so first order impacts, right? Your direct impacts in the world is really where our energy should be. And again, it's not that those reverberating impacts aren't important. It's just that we don't have the cognitive ability to play that game out, to play 12-dimensional chess. And as it, I think I can argue, it's those first-order impacts that are the most important, right? So obviously, if you ever come into something in your life where through experience you go, that seemed like the right thing to do, but it led to this domino that kind of came back and was actually negative, then of course, go with that. But my point here is you don't start thinking about the dominoes and the 12-dimensional the chess. You just start thinking first-order impacts, you know? And so the next key point here is consistency, right? That your ethical, you know, principle should be applied consistency to everyone, to all beings, right? That these things should not be arbitrary. And by the way, this is where I'll throw in one comment about recent events, about the the war between Israel and Hamas, which is some on the left, not many, but some have failed this test of consistency by not only not fully condemning Hamas, but almost kind of feeling like Hamas's actions were justified. Again, if you're opposed to terrorism, if you're opposed to the killing and mutilation of civilians, you have to condemn Hamas. You don't go second order, third order. Well, Hamas did this because Israel did this and in our history. No, 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 no. You've lost the plot. You've lost the plot. First order impacts. Terrorist acts are terrorism. Stop. Full stop. You can hold that thought and then in a separate chain of thought, start thinking about conditions in Palestine and Gaza and West Bank that are unjust, that Israel needs to account for. Absolutely. But they shouldn't be linked, right? They should not be linked. You need to be able to condemn terrorism at the moment that it occurs. You don't just go out and start getting into the 3D chess right away, okay? Now, coming back to some clear kind of rules here that you know philosophers have put out over the ages here for ethics in the real world, let's start with the golden rule, right? This is do unto others as you would like them to do to you. Right? And this is it's an interesting logic here, right? It's like, hey, the, the least you can do is if you would like to set someone to treat you in a certain way, you should reciprocate that, right? That's a, that's a pretty sound moral principle, but it turns out that it leaves some pretty big things out. And so some people have called what they call the platinum rule. Do unto others as they would like to be treated, right? So it's not projecting your own things, but actually trying to empathize with them and say, how would they like to be treated in this situation? And I'm going to go that extra step, 
right? And that's a nice heuristic too, and I like that, right? Because there's some things that don't bother me that much, but that bother others a lot. And if I was to just project my own values onto others, I would say, oh, well, they shouldn't be bothered by that. It doesn't bother me. Well, it does bother them. And you know what? You should go that extra mile to kind of look out for their interests and not bother them just because it doesn't bother you. So I think the platinum rule is a significant upgrade. But I'm going to argue right now that I think the ethics for the 21st century needs a further upgrade. So I don't know what's higher than platinum. You know, if it's titanium or diamond, I don't know. But I think it is do unto other beings, not just humans, but all sentient beings, what they would like to be done to them, right? So this is expanding the moral sphere beyond just humans, right? The golden rule and the platinum rule are just for humans. And I don't think that's sufficient. I think and you're having your moral ethical principles end at the border of your species is ridiculous, right? Because the reality is the other species on this planet are our kin. They're our close cousins, right? Many of them have been on this earth longer than us, right? We have co-evolved with many of these species. These species have the same capacities for suffering and pain as we do. Why should an ethical life stop at our own species? Also, there's never was never a point in our in, in, in evolution where the first human appeared, right? This is a continuum or a continuum of sentience and consciousness. And so sentient beings is the proper moral sphere, not just humans, right? So now some might immediately think, whoa, 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 whoa. Once we start taking into account all other sentient beings, things are going to get too complicated. You're going back to that overwhelming piece, right? You said don't play the 12-dimensional chess. I get that. But now you're saying take into account the interests of all other sentient beings. I'm going to argue again that it doesn't actually make things that complicated, right? It really doesn't, right? As we'll see, the reality here is, is that life displaces life. This is a basic fact. I tell my students this all, all the time, right? My presence as a living human being, by definition, requires the displacement of other some forms of life. That's what being a biological entity on planet Earth means. My life will displace some other forms of life, right? This is true whether you're a human, a wolf, an elephant, or even an insect, right? Basically, everything needs to eat, everything needs to drink, everything needs to occupy some amount of habitat, and by occupying it, you displace some other form of life. This is a fact, right? So once you internalize that fact, it removes the guilt of having to be perfect or that our actions can't ever lead to any destruction or any death at all because that's impossible, right? What we can do is choose to respect other forms of life so that our impacts are diminished and the type of impacts we have on other types of life aren't the worst types. So this is kind of the first step here. I just want to take a step back because this is really important, right? Because a lot of people, you know, I'll talk more about animal issues and veganism. And a lot of people say, well, you know, you still kill plants or you still kill, you know, the things in the fields where the plants are grown. And I go, yes, that's right. Being a vegan doesn't mean zero 
killing. It means significantly less killing, and it means significantly less abuse of sentient beings, right? But once you accept that your life, which is worth living, right? No human you know, has to be able to say, I, don't, I should move out of the space so that something else can take it, right? Every animal, every individual animal and sentient being has a right to life, right? And a right for its interest to promote them. And that by definition means displacing some other life forms. And so we don't need to feel guilty about that. So we can take that question off the table. But then we have the much more serious question, which is, okay, I'm here. I'm a human. My life is going to displace some other life. How much? How? In what capacity? Right? Those are the right questions, right? So for example, my vegan diet consists of grains and nuts and vegetables and fruits that are harvested in ways that displace some amount of forest land. They also displace and cause the death of some animals that would live in those fields if I wasn't around. And again, that's okay. Life displaces life. And my diet reduces that to a great extent, right? And again, coming back to first order impacts, my diet doesn't lead to the direct torture and death of other sentient beings. Yes, a gopher might die when the field is dug up to grow some soybeans for me or some rice. Yes, but that is inadvertent. And it's not an animal that is literally bred and tortured to to grow protein for me. Much, much different in terms of quantity and quality of the, the suffering, right? Now, again, contrast my diet with somebody who, who survives on an industrial meat and dairy diet, right? Their, their, their diet not only takes orders of magnitude more land and resources to produce, but it directly tortures and kills many highly sentient beings in the process and also many more gophers and birds and other animals for all the fields that have to be um, used to grow the food to feed to the animals, right? So it's completely different in both magnitude and severity, right? So in my view, the ethical life is the vegan life, right? Now, you can, you can modify that a little, right? You can say, I'm going to eat some shellfish. Shellfish are completely sustainable, Right? They don't have complex nervous systems. A clam or a mussel doesn't suffer when you eat it. You can use the shells to create artificial reefs. They help clean the water. Right, So again, it doesn't have to be 100% vegan, but boom, you could have insect protein. Again, if you want to hunt and you want to hunt that animal so it's not raised and tortured, but you hunt a deer, you kill it quickly. Right, So my point here is the vegan diet is an ethical diet. But there are other things that aren't 100% vegan that are ethical too. What is not ethical is saying, I'm going to do the maximum amount of carnage, maximum amount of abuse and torture and pollution in terms of first order impacts because I need a piece of bacon, because I want a milkshake, right? That's not ethical, right? If you have any sense of, you know, of, of, Ethical principles applied to resource use and to other sentient beings, the industrial meat system just falls short on every dimension, right? Because ultimately, what ethics is at its core is about reducing suffering, right? 
on the first level approximation, reducing the amount of suffering that your life produces in the world is the first ethical principle, right? So the key point here that I want to end on here is take your ethical principles and turn them into practice, right? Because only through operationalizing them do they matter. Now, again, you don't have to apply this to food. You could think about this with transportation. You know, you could think about the climate emergency. You can say, okay, I know, redu- you know reducing greenhouse gas impacts is a big deal. So what are my main forms of greenhouse gas emissions and how can I reduce those? Right? So you can do many things. I think the diet is the most important because you're really talking about the life and death of sentient beings. And it's something we do all day, every day, and we have to do. Right? So I think diet is probably the, t- the place to start, but it's not the only place. Now, I also want to mention one other point before the break here. Right? Living an ethical life, a lot of it is about one's own direct impacts on the world. But it's also about speaking up against injustices in your midst, right? That's also part of being ethical. So if you're doing everything right, you know, you're like reducing your impacts, you're really fair with all your coworkers, you're great and loving to your family, you're a vegan, you know, you you really care about other people and, and try to be kind, that's amazing, right? You've like you're better than 99% of the people on the planet right there. But if you also stand by when other people are acting unethical, when other people make racist comments, when other people make sexist comments, when other people make bigoted comments, and you stay silent. You keep in your own compartment and you never speak up. That's an ethical failing, right? So I think of the flip side of doing one's own, you know, operationalizing one's own values is also you have to speak up when you see injustice around you, right? This has a big social impact, right? You know, when that person online at the grocery store starts making a racist comment about the Mexican worker, and you say, hey, 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 man, please don't do that. This is a human being. We don't don't countenance that, right? Everybody deserves respect. Please keep your racism to yourself, or better yet, why don't you try to get get beyond that, right, and and, and treat people with respect? And people around you are going to see you do that. That has a big social contagion effect in a positive way, right? Just as negative behavior has a negative social contagion, it's going to give other people a little bit more courage to speak up and go, wow, I wish I had said that. Or maybe they'll even chime in there and go, yeah, I agree with you. You know, hey, man, we don't like that, right? So we need, you know, we as in, we're a social species. And if we keep doing things and no one says anything, Right, it kind of gives us license. I think this is a big reason we ended up with Trump and the GOP fascist cult is because year after year, decade after decade, too few people spoke out to their family, friends, peers, and even to strangers, as like this grocery store example. And society degraded because it gave license to this. Right, we were so individualistic in America, and we had this live and let live mentality. That many of us became incredibly cowardly, right? And we, again, we gave social license to this kind of degraded and debauched behavior. So I think that the, the other piece of living an ethical life is garnering the courage to speak out against injustice in your midst. So after the break, I'll come back with the antidote. Then they bury him with stars, sell his body like- 
there's a woman on my block She'll just sit there facing the hill She'll say, who gonna take away his license to kill? Now he's hell-bent for destruction He's afraid and confused And his brain has been mismanaged with great Okay, so for the antidote, I'm going to recommend that everyone just choose one ethical principle that you hold dear, that is very important to you in terms of your values and your identity, and you think about how you can better actualize that in the real world. And I'm going to provide an example from my life. Like I've mentioned, I think being ethical means not only looking at your own individual ethical actions, but also speaking up against unethical behavior that happens in your presence and again i just want to emphasize i really think a lot of the maga movement got so crazy and out of hand and powerful in that tens of millions of people follow it because people just year after year decade after decade just didn't speak up to that crazy uncle the crazy co-worker the crazy neighbor right and then you just let it build and you know it's kind of like a cancer it just grows and metastasizes so here's an example from my life where I'm big on animal rights, right? I'm a vegan. I don't buy animal products. I give a lot of money to animal rights groups. I work in this space. I try to get my students involved. But I also pay attention to abuses in the system. And one really kind of um, stood out to me in the last few years. And this is from UC Davis. UC Davis has a primate lab. And if you go on their website, it's all these happy little monkeys running around and cute little girls feeding them out of baby bottles, right? But a couple years ago, they got millions of dollars from Elon Musk's Neuralink company. Neuralink is a company that plans, and they actually just got, you, I think, FDA approval to start doing human trials. They're going to implant chips in people's brains to basically make people into kind of supercomputers and cyborgs and you know you know have the tower of ai superhumans now of course since it's elon musk and it's you know a fascist fucktard um in his his whole world they've kind of put it under this thing of we're going to help paralyzed people walk again and in fact that's what the original trials are on the fda is to put these chips into parallel paralyzed people and by the way i obviously would want paralyzed people to 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 have the use of their, their limbs and all that, that's great, but that's not the goal of this company. That's kind of the ruse that they're using to get the technology. The goal is to have basically superhumans. That's Elon Musk's vision. You can read about this stuff. You know, Don't take my word for it. It's being documented, and a lot of people who work for his the company are coming out and talking about this. Anyway, he paid UC Davis Primate Lab millions of dollars a few years ago to test this stuff on monkeys. Now, the animal welfare laws in the United States and the world are horrific. The things that you can legally do, you know, and not get in trouble at all to all types of animals, whether in medical, in research, and obviously in industrial livestock production, is just fucking horrific. But UC Davis didn't even adhere to those minimum standards. And stuff has come out in the last, you know, few months that the stuff they did to these monkeys was even worse than what you could get away with. It's just straight-up fucking horror show stuff. And again, they're drilling into their brains, they're conducting tests on them, really unsafe conditions, and, and these monkeys just suffer these horrible deaths. They all end up being killed. 
And um, and so I've been following this issue. I actually called the primate lab and talked to the guy who was in charge of the research and had a long conversation with him. And I, you know, and then finally, when I realized that probably a lot of the stuff he was telling me was a lie, and all these exposés have come out, I have been following this issue more closely. An organization that has been really on the forefront of this is Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. They're an animal rights group that's trying to get, um, you know an end to medical testing on animals. And by the way, with current technology, testing on animals is completely ridiculous. It doesn't give good information. It's unnecessary. It's cruel. We have simulations, computers, artificial intelligence, robotics. We have so many better ways to get better data that torturing poor animals for medical experiments is just fucking barbaric, right? So anyway, when I found out that these UC Davis people were just basically lying, um, I said, you know, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take this a little bit more seriously. So I'm now spending time, you know, trying to you know issue formal complaints to try to get some accountability because the things they did to these monkeys is just again there's billions of animals tortured in factory farms, you know, every year, and so it's like you know at some point it's just the entire system. But this one is so egregious. This is a public university. It, it has this outside image again go on the website of like helping the animals and everyone's happy and then you see it's really a horror show behind the scene and they lied to me you know i talked to this guy and he straight out lied to me and they're still putting out press releases full of lies and it's basically a cover-up that's going on right and uc davis gets millions of dollars for you know in these research grants it but it's a public institution and I'm a UC alum from, I have three degrees from the University of California. So anyway, I'm spending a significant amount of time trying to get accountability for this. And, and the last point on this example that I want to mention is that something I've learned over the years is that a lot of times when you see egregious behavior, you read about it, you know, just easy in the back of your mind to say, oh, someone's going to take care of that. That's illegal. There's some watchdog group. There's some enforcement agency. And a lot of times it's just not true. A lot of stuff just goes unpunished unless there's some groups like PCRM or like concerned citizens who just keep pushing and demanding accountability. So in this example, you know, I'm taking my animal rights ethic and saying I'm going to hold them accountable for what they did to these animals, even though it's not something directly in my purview, but it's that part of that speaking up against unethical behavior. And, and to end this section, I just want to say, I don't want to overemphasize individual actions, which is what this podcast has been about and probably the next one, because there's a whole corrupt system and individual actions only go so far. Part of the whole corporate movement of the last few decades is to get people focused on their recycling, your carbon footprint, right? So that you don't look at the corrupt systems that are really responsible for most of the unethical, destructive behavior. So I get that. However, I think if we're going to take on powerful power structures and institutions and systems that are corrupt, it's better to really align our ethics individually first. So my point here is that you can have good impacts on your own life and the people around you, and you can have a positive social contagion, but also it positions you better if you are living ethically to then take on unethical systems. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And with that, everybody, stay safe, take care, be well.